So John's gospel is different from the other three gospels, right? In the, in the New Testament, there's four gospels. Gospel just means a biography of Jesus of sorts. There's four of these in the New Testament. There's Matthew's biography of Jesus, Mark's, Luke's, and John. And John's is different from the other three. In ways that the other three are deeply similar, John's is different. One of the ways that his is different is that he doesn't just give us facts about the life of Jesus in the same way that the other gospel writers give us facts about Jesus' life. When you read through John's gospel, what you find is you find these moments in the life of Jesus and these miracles that Jesus performed, you find them described in a particular way. You see, he describes them not just to help us believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but he also uses these moments and these miracles to lead us into an experience of communion with the Christ. Now that's an agenda John has in his writing. He is not merely describing events in the life of Jesus in order to convince you of a fact. He's writing in such a way in order to lead you into an experience with the risen Christ where you have communion with him. So at the end of the book, in fact, John writes these words. I've written this book that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, this is John's agenda for his readers. That's for you and me. It's that we would have life. Now, John has spent a whole book filling that word life with meaning. It's not a thin word for John. It's not a throwaway word. When John says, I've written this so that you can have life, he's talking about the very life of God. That you can have that life. The life of God. The life that Jesus came to give us through new birth. And that he poured out his Holy Spirit so that we can grow in it. In John's gospel, remember John never identifies himself by name, right? How does he identify himself in the gospel? Does anybody know this? The beloved. His self-identity is primarily who he is in this intimate friendship with Christ. That's the larger reality in his life. And so in John's gospel, he is inviting you to experience friendship with Christ. And the life that flows out of a friendship with Christ. It's a life that leads us out of self-centeredness. You think of the woman at the well. Leading her out of self-centeredness into being centered in God And in others. Now this morning through John's gospel. God is drawing our church. Into the very mystery of Jesus. This gospel is not about informing your mind of certain facts. Only a scientific culture. 
that has made an idol out of the mind could turn and pervert John's gospel into that. John's gospel is the spirit of the living God inviting you into the mystery of Christ. He is calling us to become one with Jesus, to live with Jesus as a beloved friend. Look what it says in John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I, I am the good shepherd. If you could read it in its original language, that's the literal translation. He repeats the word I twice. I, I am the good shepherd. The Lord had given Israel many shepherds throughout their history, right? We think of Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon and the prophets Isaiah. And you think about this great passage. Wasn't it great hearing a shepherd read to us about a shepherd? You could tell he knew what he was reading. He had given Israel Ezekiel and so many others. And through these shepherds, Christ is saying, I was the one who through them led you out of Egypt. I was the one who led you into the promised land. I led you through into freedom across the danger of the Red Sea. I am the shepherd that was doing that. I am the shepherd that was greater and larger and even more present to you than Moses. I am the one. I am the Lord Christ himself. I am the one who when you gathered around the mountain, I gave you the law. The law that you so desperately needed for when you came into the land so that you would know how to live life in the land. Jesus is saying, I am. And I always have been the single, unique, peerless shepherd. That's me. Notice how true this is. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Holy cow. Think about which religious system is hearing that statement. The people hearing that statement have spent their entire life offering what on an altar when they sin? A sheep. For generations, it's the sheep that lays down his life so that the shepherds of Israel could be cleansed of their sins before an almighty God. And he totally trumps all of that. He says, you are so accustomed to the power you have over these sheep and these sheep reconciling you to God by the blood of their own lives. But let me tell you something. Not only am I the true shepherd, everything's being reversed. Because now the shepherd, surely his life is more valuable than the sheep. Now the shepherd lays down his life For the sheep. (laughs) Jesus is voluntary. Offering of his own life. This is why he says I'm the good shepherd. The emphasis in the original language is not only on I. It's on this adjective good. I am the good shepherd. But good is such a 
puny translation of that word. I mean, it can be translated noble or beautiful or perfect or precious or even wonderful. It's all the stuff you think of with good packed in to one suitcase and you just got to give it four letters. So you give it G-O-O-D. Listen, listen to what God told Israel several hundred years before, prior to this through Isaiah. Now, God is preparing Israel for the mind-boggling astonishment that they're going to get a different kind of shepherd, right, than the ones they have had. And listen to what he says. Surely this shepherd, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Do you hear? It's a substitution, right? All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has substituted for us, right? The substitution of the shepherd for the sheep. He has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a shepherd. What a precious and wonderful and noble and beautiful shepherd. (laughs) And as if that's not enough, right? There's more in John 10. There's another aspect of the goodness of the shepherd. In addition to laying down his life, which is enough to stop the whole chapter, right? To stop the whole Bible, just to put a period there and it changes everything, right? As if that's not enough. Look what it says in addition, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, like I said, this part of the Bible was originally written in Greek, in Koine Greek. And in Koine Greek, which is a dialect of Greek, there were several words for know or knowledge or to know. They each had their own nuances. This word, in Koine Greek, it's gnosko. And it doesn't mean to know something in an intellectual sense. It doesn't mean to understand the Pythagorean theorem. They had a word for that kind of knowledge. That kind of knowledge is important. This word. It's the word you use when there's an intimate relationship. It's not the words of Stephen Hawking, a scientist. It's the words of Shakespeare, a poet. This is the cycle of sonnets he wrote to his lover. This is the word he reached for. It's not the word Hawking reaches for when he's trying to describe his knowledge of the cosmos. It's an intense form of relational knowledge. Christ is saying that he has a personal, caring, intimate understanding of each sheep. He knows them. Jump back to verse 3. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them. Uh, I think I've told you, some of you recently, I just finished a a series of four books by a very young author named Christopher Paolini, um, Aragon, Brisinger, uh, 
eldest inheritance. And for the other nerds and children in the room, the, the adults who read the book, nerds. The children, they're cool. But you remember the whole deal with the name? If you know someone's name, the climax of the whole series is when Aragon whispers his true name to the woman he loves and it gives her absolute knowledge of who he is. He knows your name. It's remarkable, right? I mean, he knows Mary Grace better than Luke. This is unbelievable. In in biblical language, to know someone's name, it's the idea that Jesus knows Abby's unique strengths and unique weaknesses. It means he knows Macy's. Where's Macy? You're running around there. You're hiding behind Mike. Do you know that what Macy's job is? Every day from 3 o'clock in the afternoon until late in the evening, she sits with profoundly disabled people, feeding them, changing them. He knows her mission in life. It means the all-powerful, infinite God takes time to get to know Alan. Look, too often we construe the knowledge of God in terms of the cold reality of omniscience. That is not gnosko. It is not the cold, objective, sterile language of omniscience. It is the profound language of a loving relationship. Who gives a rip about omniscience? He takes time to know Alan. He listens to Jason. He creates a mutual communion with Barbara. And if you let Christ, he will reveal to you that you are loved by him. Now look, I did not say if you let him, he will teach you. I'm saying if you let him, he will speak to the deepest fiber of your being. And he will lead you to knowing that he loves you. That he values you. That you are precious to him. Shepherding is about, right? The whole passage from Ezekiel is about bad shepherding. And Jesus takes up that passage and says, I am not that. Good shepherding is about caring for the weak and the lost and those in need. Listen to this. Good shepherding is about presence and love and support. Can you believe this? The infinite, all-knowing God of the universe. This is the part of the this is John's gospel. He begins on a cosmology, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and he's quoting Genesis 1:1 and he's causing us to think about how God has so much power. He flung the stars into space and then he gets to this moment and he says, "That's me." Yeah, and you know what that means about me? It means that I, the creator God, the huge, infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing God am not reduced 
to some cosmic force. I am personally present. And if we learn to listen, we will gradually become accustomed to his voice. And we will be able to tell the difference between his voice and all the other voices that speak. The voice of the good shepherd. That's why it says down in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. Not they follow God as some objective reality. They follow Christ. Do you hear how this language is a language of familiarity and friendship and intimacy? And from the very first verse of John's gospel, we pick up on this close friendship, right? Between Jesus and the Father. And now Jesus says he seeks a comparable friendship with you and me. Just as the Father knows me. You know what it looks like when a person actually experiences this reality? It looks like Psalm 23. If you have your Bibles, look there. In America, we have um, found such great comfort in Psalm 23 at the graveside that we're in danger of limiting Psalm 23. To the extremes of life. But Psalm 23. Is great at the graveside. Because it's about. What. It's about the shape of a life. That is intimately aware. And every moment. Of the nearness of God. Psalm 23 is an expression. Of profound trust. In the good shepherd. It's this extraordinary relationship, this incredible way of living at rest in the goodness of the shepherd. Here's a person, David, who's opened his heart to God. And God has revealed to David how beautiful and valuable David is. I've often been struck by David, right? I mean, as high as David soared, he could go that low too. What has often struck me about David is his spiritual stamina. That he could keep loving God after he had the affair and committed murder. That he could love God in the pit and on the mountaintop. I'm, I'm, I'm often struck by the scene where David is leaving Jerusalem because his son, the usurper, is rebelling and leading a coup against him. And as he leaves, he's cursed by an enemy. And instead of striking the enemy, you know, have you ever come home at the end of a bad day and the least thing sets you off? Worst day in David's life, he's walking out. And when he's cursed by an enemy, what comes out of David? Not what would come out of my heart. What comes out of David is grace and truth and kindness and gentleness. I'm struck by his spiritual stamina and vitality. And you know what Psalm 23 is? It is the secret behind that. 
Psalm 23 is the shape of a life that is constantly, daily, childlike in its relationship to the Father. The other night during our home group, we were at the Cassius. Uh, some of those of you who are in our home group might remember this. And, and we're studying the last chapter of John's gospel. And, Jerem, and, and um, Shelby is exhausted and he's, and he's sleeping on Janelle's lap as we're having our Bible study. Do any of you remember this? His like, arms were like out like this and his legs were flopped over. And he was totally relaxed. And then he flopped over again and he did it the other way. He was completely at peace in the lap of his mother. He had no fear. He was at rest. That is Psalm 23. And you can have that kind of life. That could be the dominant image of your life. Remember when it comes to the Psalms, you've got to always remember this when you're reading the Psalms, that the nuclear reactor at the center of the Psalms, the power plant that feeds all 150 Psalms, the the energy force that, that sheds light over the landscape of every Psalm, it's this. It is a vision of reality in which God rules over every person in every place. It's a vision of reality in which the rule and reign of God covers every square inch. It covers the valleys and it covers the mountains. So Psalm 23 was written by a shepherd who became a king. His name was David. And he had learned to live resting in this God whose splendor outshines a million suns. And so he says, the Lord... In my Bible, that word Lord is in small caps, which means he's using the the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. That one, that all-powerful one that was revealed to us at Mount Sinai, who splits the sky and opens oceans and shatters the darkness with his light, that one, that Lord is my shepherd. Now, at the time when David wrote this psalm, there was nothing new about calling God a shepherd. Nothing new. No big deal. David was an Israelite, and the Israelites had been referring to God as a shepherd for over 800 years. And not just the Israelites, the Egyptians. We have have evidence in the Egyptian historical literature that they too referred to their gods in terms of a shepherd. But what is unique... And uniquely powerful about David's psalm is the personal pronoun, my. This is new. This has never been done in world history. There is no evidence that anywhere in Egyptian religion or get this anywhere in the Jewish religion, never had God as the shepherd been personalized. The idea of God as a shepherd was always applied to the people group as a whole. It was about how God would guide a nation. How God in general would guide his people. Never had it been applied to a personal relationship. The Lord is the shepherd. Would have been no big deal. The Lord is my shepherd. Was a Copernican revolution. And because of this personal relationship between David and his maker, David says, 
I shall not want. He is so confident in God's provision and God's personal guidance. He's so deeply at rest in his experiences with God that in a room with people he doesn't know well, he can fall asleep in God's lap, totally relaxed. Do you relax in your sleep? The sad thing is many of us don't. He is so confident that God will be there in his future. Look how he ends the psalm. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. Again, follow is a weak translation. It's pursue. It's the same word used of enemies in other psalms that David wrote. Surely my enemies persecute me. It's often translated that way. Surely goodness and mercy will persecute. Follow me. They will track. It's the image of a sheepdog running around the sheep, getting them back in line. The goodness and mercy of God is to me a sheepdog. It chases me. It hounds me. It follows me. It keeps coming after me. It will chase me back. Surely that is true. All the days of my life, I know that's going to happen. And it's not just provision and guidance. When God is your shepherd, there's protection. Look at verse 4 and 5. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. David is no Pollyanna. He just wrote Psalm 22, the darkest psalm in the Bible. My enemies surround me like ravening lions. They tear my flesh. All of my bones are out of joint. Coming straight off the heels of Psalm 22 is the power of Psalm 23. He's not a Pollyanna. He knows there are enemies. There are still enemies in his life. But God's provision and God's guidance will come even in the presence of an overwhelming force. Even though David has yet to face, and he knows he will face it, suffering and pain, and sorrow, and loss unimaginable. God is there. God will provide. God will protect. You see, David has discovered that God is not a cosmic force. David is no deist. You see how David doesn't allow the sovereignty of God to erase the intimacy of God? In the midst of a broken world, David and the other authors of the Psalms, they don't always see how God is there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken? Right? They don't always see where God is. We could look at some of the Psalms and they, these writers, David himself, they are shattered. And God is hiding. But when push comes to shove, they never yield from this fact. Like I said at the start, the nuclear reactor at the center of the Psalms is a vision of reality in which God reigns and rules over every person and every place. Do you see Psalm 23? Here is the buoyant hope that springs from a faith-filled awareness not of God's power, but of God's intimacy, of His nearness, of His love. Of his delight.
This is someone who has suffered and seen real pain and injustice. He is in a world plunged in war. He lives in a country enthralled by idols and a church that is torn by division. And yet this poem is saturated with trust and assurance. Even when we are living under the heartlessness of an evil empire, we can rest in the goodness of God. I love the imagery. <laughs> look, look at verses 1 to 3 where God is before David, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me in green pastures. It's the image on the front of the worship God, right? He's leading. He's in front of David. I love how in verse 4 it changes though. God is with him, right? In verse 4, it's a total different location, proximic wise of the shepherd to the sheep. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are not in front of me. Oh no, not in this, not in this dark place. You are with me. I love how in verse 5 to 6, now he's following. Now the purpose of my sermon this morning is not to present a deep insight into what it means for Jesus to be the good shepherd. The purpose of this message is to allure us, each of us, into an experience deep inside ourselves, in our hearts, of the shepherding work of Christ. A few years ago, when Janelle and I and our three children at the time had just moved from England back to the great nation of Texas, I had been hired as an adjunct professor at the Houston Graduate School of Theology, and um, it was across town. Now, when you live in Houston, across town has a total different meaning than it does here in Harrisonburg. We had only one vehicle, and Janelle needed the vehicle. And because of the time of my classes and the distance between my house and my work, We had to get a second vehicle, but we were poor. There was no money. So we worked on our budget, and we figured out a way that we could afford a small car note. And I started shopping and looking around for a reliable, cheap, used car. And I found it. It was in the budget. It was small. It was cheap. It seemed to be in decent working order. And I'm on the... I'm at the used car dealership standing looking at it. And I have a deep sense inside of me that I should not buy it. That God didn't want me to. So I went home and I told Janelle, I'm pretty sure we shouldn't buy a vehicle right now. Now the school year is approaching, so it feels a bit stressful. But we wait. And in a couple of days... An old friend calls me. You know who it is? Tim Bowman. Tim Bowman calls me. We haven't talked in a few years. And you can imagine my reaction when he says out of the blue, Hey, Aubrey, we want to give you and Janelle a car. (laughs) And they did. He didn't know. He knew nothing about our situation. We lived hours apart, an hour and 45 minutes from each other. A 1992 Toyota Tercel. He had driven it, his son had driven it, his daughter had driven it, and they had given it a name, the bullet. Not because of its speed, its size, okay? And it was perfect. A small, 
used, good gas mileage car, everything I needed. Now, you might think the story sounds hokey or quaint or contrived. But I was there, and the Lord is my shepherd. A few nights ago, we were watching Downton Abbey. For those of you who know about this, my name is Aubrey, and I'm addicted to Downton Abbey. It was actually the first one. We tried to do it for pizza and movie night, and we're watching the first one, and suddenly I have a deep sense inside of me, my children cannot see this. And I ask them all to go to bed. And suddenly, without warning, in the first episode, something occurs that I would not want any of my children to be exposed to. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want for anything. That is what this means. Is he your shepherd? Christ is among us. He is present. He is alive. He is praying among us. He is enjoying us. He is blessing us and suffering among us. And our great need is not to have a deeper insight into the qualities of a shepherd. Our great need is to come to experience deep inside ourselves, in our hearts, his shepherding work. And when we do, like I said at the beginning, we will begin to experience the very life of God, which Jesus came to give us through new birth and growth in his spirit, a life of friendship with the Christ that will, if we learn to hear his voice, it will lead us out of our self-centeredness into a centeredness in God and in others. God is inviting you and me Into the mystery of Jesus. He is calling us to become one with Jesus. To live with Jesus as a beloved friend. Let's pray.